Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank all those in attendance. In rolling out its new South Asia strategy last August, the administration underscored the United States' hard-fought security gains in Afghanistan and reiterated our commitment to helping establish a foundation for political resolution. With the recent reports of shrinking government control of territory, continued high attrition of Afghan forces, and deadly attacks in Kabul by Haqqani and ISIS Khorasan, it is clear that foundation is a long way off. But we are encouraged by the troop strength authorized in the new strategy at 12,300 military personnel, with an additional 1,000 on request, which is approaching the level our force commander requested in 2014. Our NATO and non-NATO allies have also reinforced their troop commitments and support to Afghan forces through 2020. U.S. Commander General Nicholson says he now has what he needs to assist Afghans in achieving a sustainable outcome for Afghanistan and the region. The new conditions-based approach provides Afghans, our allies, as well as the Taliban, a clear signal of American commitment as the national unity government pursues critical reform and self-reliance efforts. This administration has also rightly drawn a clear line with Pakistan, suspending security assistance of over a billion as long as Islamabad continues to shelter Akhani and other terror groups that target innocent civilians as well as U.S. and allied forces. This more pointed approach is designed to confront Pakistan's duplicity and its actions to provide safe harbor to the greatest threat to our efforts in Afghanistan. The administration has also prioritized a broad diplomatic effort as key to stable, sustainable, and a self-governing Afghanistan that is at peace with its neighbors. I am pleased to hear that Deputy, Deputy Secretary Sullivan and General Votel were recently in Kabul showing our resolve in the face of four deadly attacks, two attributed to the Akhani's and two attributed to ISIS Khorasan. These attacks highlight the deadly threats that remain, and we must counteract them with a far more unified international community. While President Trump and President Ghani have stated that these attacks may preclude a peace process with the Taliban at the moment, it is incumbent upon us to be ready when that moment occurs. I welcome our witnesses and hope to hear more specifics of this strategy, especially in the area of economic and personal diplomacy in order to make the most of military gains General Nicholson projects. With that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I very much appreciate uh, this hearing on Afghanistan so we can hear from the administration its strategies in regards to Afghanistan moving forward. We have two very distinguished witnesses. And I, uh, Secretary Shriver, particularly appreciate the fact that the Department of Defense is present, represented here today. Uh, as you know, during the Syria hearings, we were unable to get a representative from the Department of Defense, and I think that was unfortunate. And we still have not had a classified briefing on the U.S. troop presence uh, moving forward in, in Syria, and I, I hope that will take place. Afghanistan, 16 years of U.S. combat uh, in Afghanistan, significant U.S. investment of, our, of uh, blood and treasure. And it's finding out that it's much harder to make peace than war, which is something that we always know 
is a challenge. All of us condemn the recent carnage that was caused by the insurgents and terrorists in the attack uh, last month, uh, and we uh, very much are committed to ending the violence in Afghanistan. But the question is, what is the U.S. policy as it relates to uh, resolving long-term peace in Afghanistan? And Mr. Chairman, I uh, note President Trump's comment to the United Nations Security Council. And here I think we're finding conflicting messages as to what the U.S. policy is in Afghanistan. The President said, we don't want to talk to the Taliban. We're going to finish what we have to finish. What nobody else has been able to finish, we are going to be able to do it. Well, that raises the question as to whether the President believes that this is a military-only operation, which I certainly disagree with. I notice uh, that one day after the President's remarks, um, our witness, um, uh, Secretary Sullivan, said uh, that uh, the strategy is to convince the Taliban or significant elements of the Taliban that there isn't a military solution to the security situation here that ultimately the peace and security of Afghanistan will be determined by peace talks. Mr. Secretary, I agree with that comment. I, I think that's where our strategy should be. But the question is, is it clear to our, uh, our stakeholders globally what the U.S. policy is in, in Afghanistan? Does the administration really believe that a simple suspension, uh, excuse me, uh, so do we have a clear message as to what the U.S. policy is uh, in regards to our partners in that region, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about that today. I want to hear, as I mentioned to you uh, before coming into the chamber, uh, I want to, to review here today our regional uh, efforts in regards to Pakistan and how that impacts on our strategies in Afghanistan. Does the administration really believe that a simple suspension of security assistance is going to bring about a lasting commitment by Pakistan to drop support for the Afghan Taliban or the Al-Khani network? It hasn't before. We've tried it several times over the past 16 years. I have little confidence that such behavioral change is coming. So are we prepared to do more to elicit the behavioral change we want? Or is this just more about the same? Uh, Assistant Secretary Shriver, I also hope you can give us a clear, detailed sense of the military conflict on the ground. I understand that much of the U.S. military strategy has focused on supporting Afghan security forces' efforts to protect population centers. Judging from the devastating recent attacks in Kabul, something clearly is not working. We see that the Taliban contests or control an increasing swath of the Afghan territory. It competes with ISIS for influence, leading to more and more brutal attacks. By any standard, the current security situation is grim. The bottom line is the administration uh, consistently says that it has a condition-based strategy contrasted with the approach taken by the Obama administration. But the administration has yet to articulate with any precision what those conditions are. What is the end state that the U.S. and NATO troops are fighting for? We've been there 16 years. Should the American people simply accept that this is indeed a forever war? To me, the answer is clear and resounding no. There is no military solution to the conflict in Afghanistan. Last year, I introduced legislation that would boast U.S. Dip diplomatic and 
pro uh, programmatic engagement on a peace process, as well as on hard work, work of pursuing justice for wartime atrocities and accountability for human rights abuses and corruption by Afghan officials that continue to undermine the peace process. I stand ready, as I think the members of this committee, to work with the administration so that we have a clear policy for an end game in Afghanistan that can bring stability to the people of Afghanistan, allow our troops to come home, and really achieve, I hope, which is our objective. Thank you for those comments. Uh, with that, I'd like to recognize our, our uh, distinguished witnesses today. Our first witness is the Honorable John Sullivan, the Deputy Secretary of State. Our second witness is the Honorable Randall Thriver. Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs. Um, thank you both for being here. We appreciate it. It's a timely hearing. Um, if you could keep your comments to around five minutes, that would be great. Any written testimony you have without objection will be entered into the record. And with that, uh, Secretary Sullivan, if you would begin, we'd appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee. Uh, thank you for inviting me here today to provide an update on the administration's South Asia policy, uh, particularly as it applies to Afghanistan. I want to begin by offering my thoughts on Afghanistan in light of my trip to Kabul last week and talk about how we are engaging together with our partners uh, across the interagency in a regional approach in South Asia to bolster stability in the region and in Afghanistan in particular. During my trip, I was first and foremost able to extend in person our condolences, thoughts, and prayers to the hundreds of victims and their families, all of those who were affected by the recent terrible acts of violent terrorism. The United States remains firmly committed to supporting the Afghan people in their government's efforts to achieve peace, security, and prosperity for their country. While in Kabul, I met with President Ghani, Chief Executive Abdullah, and other Afghan partners. Every leader reiterated their support for our, our strategy and their commitment to creating the conditions that will bring the Taliban to the negotiating table, as Senator Cardin uh, mentioned in his opening remarks, thereby establishing an environment for sustained peace. These leaders also reaffirmed their support for the Afghanistan Compact, a series of benchmarks established by the Afghans to implement reforms in security, governance, rule of law, economic development, and peace and reconciliation. President Ghani and I co-chaired an executive committee meeting of the compact where we reviewed and highlighted progress on those benchmarks. I also discussed with the Afghan leadership the critical importance of timely, credible, and transparent elections. It's vital that parliamentary and presidential elections take place this year and next, respectively, and that they reflect the will of the Afghan people and create an inclusive government that continues to implement these fundamental reforms. In addition to shifting to a conditions-based approach instead of one predicated on arbitrary timelines, the South Asia strategy marks a change from the status quo in U.S.-Pakistan relations. We intend to hold Pakistan accountable for its failure to deny sanctuary to militant proxies. We also encourage restraint in Pakistan's military nuclear and missile programs and seek continued closer alignment of Pakistan's non-proliferation policies with our own. We continue to value our relationship with Pakistan and recognize the benefit of cooperation. Pakistan has played an important role in pushing al-Qaeda closer to defeat, combating ISIS, securing its nuclear weapons, 
hosting Afghan refugees, and importantly, providing access for supplies and equipment used by U.S. and Afghan forces. We also acknowledge the enormous sacrifices the Pakistani people and security forces have made to combat terrorism. We have shared with Pakistan our South Asia strategy in detail and have made our expectations clear to Pakistan, emphasizing that they must take decisive action against all militant and terrorist groups based there. In January, the President suspended security assistance to the Pakistani military with limited exceptions for programs that directly support U.S. national security interests, which would be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. We may consider lifting the suspension when we see decisive and sustained actions to address our concerns, including targeting all terrorist groups operating within its territory without distinction. The United States is committed to doing our part to reduce tensions in the region in ways that address Pakistan's legitimate concerns. To be clear, we oppose the use of terrorist proxies by any country against another country anywhere in the world. The use of terrorism has no place in a rules-based international system. We hope the Pakistanis will also help to convince the Taliban to enter into a peace process. <clears throat> we continue to deepen our strategic partnership with India. Secretary Tillerson traveled to New Delhi for consultations in October 2017, and we expect to launch our inaugural 2 plus 2 dialogue with India in Washington this spring when Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis will meet with their Indian counterparts to further deepen our security ties. The United States and India share economic and humanitarian interests in Afghanistan. India has allocated more than $3 billion in assistance to Afghanistan since 2001. India further strengthened ties with Afghanistan with the signing of a development partnership agreement last year. We appreciate these contributions and we look forward for more ways to work with India to promote economic growth and security in Afghanistan. The United States is also strengthening our partnerships with the Central Asian republics. We're, we are committed to supporting their independence, territorial integrity and sovereignty and fostering regional connectivity. Two weeks ago, I attended a C5 plus one, the C being the uh, five Central Asian republics plus the United States, in a discussion on Afghanistan at the UN Security Council, where we discussed our bilateral and multilateral efforts to support Afghanistan and enhance Central Asian cooperation. Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan provide important logistical access for supplies and equipment used by US and Afghan forces. These initiatives and others have helped the effort to build stability in Afghanistan and provide a better security and more economic opportunity for the people of Central Asia. Despite recent setbacks stemming from the horrific and senseless acts of violence we witnessed recently, the President's South Asia strategy is showing some signs of progress. On the battlefield, we're seeing the Taliban's momentum begin to slow. No major population center has fallen to the Taliban since its temporary occupation of Kunduz city in 2015. Afghan forces are now on the offensive. Our, NATO, our allies and NATO partners, contributing more than 6,500 troops, are actively supporting our vision for a stable Afghanistan and a more prosperous South Asia. And in the Afghan government, we have a partner that is tackling economic, political, security, and governance challenges, including corruption, that have greatly hindered progress to date. Thank you, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, Secretary Morning. Thank Schreiber, you, Mr. thank you, sir.
Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, and other distinguished members of the committee. I'm thankful for the opportunity to give a DOD perspective on the implementation of our South Asia strategy. <clears throat> In August, the President announced our new integrated regional strategy, and this strategy was developed to address the enduring interests we have in South Asia and in Afghanistan in particular. South Asia is home to two nuclear-armed countries. It's also home to the highest concentration of U.S.-designated foreign terrorist groups, so we have enduring interests there. Uh, our strategy emphasizes regional cooperation to reduce the threat of terrorism, reduce the threat and possibility of nuclear conflict, and to put pressure on the Taliban and other parties to seek rec reconciliation. We're in Afghanistan and we remain engaged with Pakistan to protect Americans, to protect our homeland, and to ensure there are no safe havens from which terrorists can plan and operate and to support attacks. Our strategy focuses on the region as a whole and shifts from a time-based approach to a conditions-on-the-ground approach and promotes political settlement. Regarding Afghanistan, uh, we focus on four key pillars known as the so-called four R's, regionalization, reinforcement, realignment, and reconciliation. Let me briefly update you on each. Regionalization focuses on expanding burden sharing, neutralizing potential spoilers, and creating the conditions for durable uh, political solutions. Uh, as the Deputy Secretary noted, I would also note we're pleased with India's role in this regard and their decision to increase economic and humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. Uh, as he also noted, we have shifted our approach on Pakistan. They are an important partner and they're absolutely key to our strategy succeeding. During Secretary Mattis's trip at the end of last year to Pakistan, uh, he made clear that we appreciate the sacrifices they've made on the war on terror, our interest in continuing to partner with them, but he also made clear that we must see a change in Pakistan's behavior in particular areas where we have great concerns. Reinforcement involves improving the Afghanistan National Defense and Security Force capabilities and their effectiveness. We do so by providing advisory support and tailored equipment and training and assistance in expanding the size and reach of the more high-performing forces, the special forces of Afghanistan. We also do this by uh, assisting in areas where they lack key capabilities, uh, such as in aviation and intelligence. NATO and coalition partner uplifts are underway and will uh, continue through 2018, and our own uh, uplift is underway. U.S. and NATO will seek increased Afghanistan control of population centers, a reduction of violence, uh, increased capabilities of Afghan special forces, and an increase to the independence of ANSDF operations. Simultaneously, we're realigning U.S. military and civilian assistance to uh, coincide with our overall objectives and our strategy. Major realignment initiatives include adjustments to our train, advise, and assist authorities, We're seeking to improve the lethality and unity of effort within the Afghan security forces, and shift lethal and non-lethal resources outside of Afghanistan into theater. There's an ambitious roadmap for the Afghan uh, security forces as defined by uh, leadership in Kabul, uh, they seek to double the size of their special forces and modernize their, their air force, which we are uh, contributing to and which we are helping them with. Uh, next steps will include the deployment of U.S. security assistance brigades into the existing train, advise, and assist structure 
and we'll continue to evaluate and determine how those efforts, uh, particularly contributing at lower levels, more tactical levels, impact the effectiveness of Afghan security forces. Reconciliation does remain our overarching objective. We seek to drive the Taliban to an understanding that they will not achieve their goals on the battlefield or through violence. To do so, we'll continue to support the Afghan security forces on the battlefield to shape the choices of the Taliban and any other opponents of the government. We seek to drive all the parties to a political settlement that ends the conflict, reduces violence, and denies safe haven for terrorists. Thank you, and look forward to any questions you may have. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Again, thank you both for your testimony. Uh, Secretary Schreiber, let me just start with you for a moment, if I might. And that is, a good part of the U.S. engagement in Afghanistan is to maintain the confidence of the people that we are there uh, in an interest of having a government that will protect the rights of all of its people. Uh, there have been some reported cases uh, uh, that uh, involve the um, behavior involving Afghan security forces and children uh, that would, uh, that has been reported that U.S. soldiers witnessed but said it'd be best to leave it alone rather than reporting this misconduct. Do we have a very clear policy among our military that the United States has a responsibility to make sure that there is accountability, including the, uh, the forces that we're working with, uh, to report any abuse of human rights, to make sure that the accountabilities for atrocities are, uh, are ensured, whether they be the terrorist groups or the Afghan forces? We do. We, we certainly uh, reject any of that kind of behavior and would uh, seek to address that. Uh, we welcome any scrutiny that, that uh, reveals that, including reporting by our forces. And uh, certainly, um, uh, we've seen the same kind of reporting, and, and word has been delivered uh, to our forces that they have a responsibility uh, to report this kind, of, this kind of activity should they see it. It's really important. We've had this conversation with, the, with, with Secretary Sullivan and the State Department that part of the healing process in Afghanistan is accountability for those who have committed uh, gross violations of human rights whether they are, again, the insurgents, terrorists, or whether they are by local forces. I take it, Mr. Secretary, that that is still the policy of the United States on accountability as part of a, uh, a settlement of what's going on in Afghanistan? Emphatically so, Senator, and what we bring it up repeatedly with our, uh, our partners in the Afghan government, and I did during my visits uh, in Kabul last week with President Ghani and, and his cabinet. Would you just briefly review with us the status of the opportunities for regional diplomacy and whether the United States will be participating in the meetings in the Kabul process that are scheduled to take place, um, I think, later this month? Yes, Senator, there, there are a number of opportunities. There's the Kabul process. Following that, there will be a conference in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, sponsored by the Uzbek government in coordination with the Afghan government. And who will represent the United States at those meetings? The United States will be represented. I, I don't know whether that's been determined yet. I might be the representative, but it will be a senior level U.S. government representative participating. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Pakistan. What is the strategy here? 
Have we seen any change in behavior um, positive for the United States as a result of the um, announced policies on international aid? Uh, there certainly hasn't been any change that was uh, that we would consider uh, final and irrevocable. We've had uh, a number of discussions with our Pakistani partners on expectations for change and expelling terrorists from uh, from areas in which they've been allowed to to operate. They understand what we uh, we expect. Uh, our suspension of security assistance continues until, until we see more evidence that they are in fact taking action. So they have, they have engaged in discussions with us, but uh, there hasn't been a sufficient amount of action yet such that we would be uh, lifting that suspension of security assistance. So drill down just a little bit more. What, what is our objective in regards to the Taliban as far as their participation in the peace process? The role the U.S. plays, the role Pakistan plays, the role Afghanistan plays. How does that come about? What is the diplomacy that brings about a meaningful process that can lead to peace? Well, we've engaged in discussions with the with both the government, the governments in Kabul and Islamabad, on the need for a, uh, a peace process to resolve the security situation in Afghanistan, including the Taliban. Including the Taliban. What we haven't seen, however, is any inclination from at least significant elements of the Taliban that are still engaging in horrific acts of terrorist violence, as we saw uh, last month in Kabul. So everyone else seems willing to engage in a, uh, a discussion at a, uh, at a peace conference, except those elements of the Taliban who are engaged in killing innocent men and women and children in, in Kabul. And just one last question. Uh, the common perception is that Pakistan's not doing enough to change that equation. Is that your assessment? It's certainly our, our assessment that Pakistan has not done enough to expel uh, elements of the Taliban that have been opera operating in sanctuaries in Pakistan and able to cross, uh, cross the border. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Young. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, welcome, gentlemen. Assistant Secretary Schreiber, in your prepared statement, you discuss the effort to help the Afghan security forces to become more capable and effective. As part of that, you touch on the effort to transition Afghan forces from Russian-made to U.S.-made aircraft, and I support that effort. Helping the Afghans transfer to U.S.-made equipment will provide them superior capability, more effective life cycle sustainment of equipment, and increased interoperability with our own forces. Secretary Shriver, you agree that a transition to U.S. equipment will yield those benefits for our Afghan partners and for the United States? We believe it will, and, and it's an important part of our approach. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. It's a, it's a happy coincidence that a transition to U.S. equipment will also provide benefits to U.S. workers. Uh, it's certainly true for my own constituents in the state of Indiana. Uh, in, in the northern part of my state, we're proudly building thousands of new Humvees for the Afghan security forces. My constituents, uh, of course, take great pride in that work, knowing that a more capable and a better protected Afghan security force means a safer America as well. Our Afghan partners shouldn't have to ride in combat uh, against terrorists in thin-skinned pickup trucks, which is what some are having to do. So uh, Secretary Shriver and Secretary Sullivan, please consider me an ally and the effort to facilitate a transition to U.S. equipment for the Afghan security forces 
and let me know how I can help. Secretary Sullivan, on a quick but uh, important note, I want to thank you and your department for your assistance related to some Ethiopian adoptions uh, we've been trying to uh, consummate. Uh, this has been very important to a number of uh, families in my own state, and uh, I've received a specific and unequivocal commitment from the new Ethiopian ambassador, you should know, related to uh, certain cases that are still in the pipeline. So I'm hopeful and optimistic that the new ambassador will honor his commitment to me regarding these specific cases. I wanted to publicly articulate uh, uh, that my hopefulness uh, in that regard and my gratitude to your department. If for some reason uh, this commitment is not honored, I may need to request your assistance once again. Can we have that conversation in the coming week or two, depending on the answer I get from the Ethiopian government, sir? Uh, of, co of course, Senator, we've had this conversation about this issue going back almost a year now, and we're aware of recent developments in Ethiopia with respect to adoptions and the need for special treatment for those cases that are already pending, uh, and I'd be happy to discuss that with you further. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Lastly, I'd like to turn to the uh, so-called Afghanistan Compact. I applaud the administration for shifting to a conditions-based rather than a calendar-based approach to the military campaign in Afghanistan. Our national security interests and objectives, the situation on the ground, and the advice of our diplomats and military leaders uh, should guide our force posture in Afghanistan. However, military progress is necessary but not sufficient. If we don't see progress in governance, rule of law, and development, any military gains will not be sustainable, and those military gains will not lead to durable attainment of our objectives in Afghanistan. This is what uh, our, our national security advisor uh, often uh, calls the need to consolidate our gains uh, around the world. Secretary Sullivan, in your prepared testimony, you mentioned the Afghanistan Compact, a series of uh, reform benchmarks established by the Afghans to implement reforms in the areas of security, governments, rule of law, economic development, and peace and reconciliation. According to a statement by our embassy in Kabul last August, this compact sets more than 200 benchmarks. Secretary Sullivan, you also write in your prepared testimony that during your trip to Afghanistan last week, you reviewed and highlighted progress on those benchmarks. Ambassador Bass testified last September that the Afghan government has asked us to hold them accountable to these commitments. Secretary Sullivan, where is the Afghan government falling short of these Afghanistan compact benchmarks and what's being done to address these shortcomings? The principal focus of, uh, of our meetings last week, Ambassador Bass and I met with President Ghani and with his cabinet uh, and that it is a, uh, the executive committee that forms the so-called compact. Our focus last week was on corruption uh, and anti-corruption efforts. Um, the Afghans have adopted a legal structure, which we applaud and we've supported, where we need to see more action is on follow-through, on cases that are brought under the legal regime that has been adopted. They've adopted an office to prosecute corruption cases, but we need to see that office and those legal remedies actually employed. There have been some cases brought, but I pointed out that there really hadn't been as many as we would have expected 
given the scope of the problem. And Mr. Secretary, you, you always strike me. Every time you're before this committee is so forthright and forthcoming, and I thank you for that. Um, what I really think we need is more detail as a committee so we can fulfill our Article I oversight responsibility. So do you commit to providing to this committee a list of the Afghanistan Compact benchmarks and a detailed, specific, and written assessment of where the Afghan government is falling short uh, on these commitments and how Kabul, with our help, presumably plans to address these shortcomings? I, I do, Senator. I welcome it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Shane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here. Um, Mr. Shriver, I'm especially pleased to see you here as someone from DOD. I think it's important for us to, to understand how state and DOD are working in conjunction on issues like Afghanistan. Having said that, um, there are some measures that suggest that the Taliban are now in control of or contesting more territory today than at any point since 2001. And you all have both referred to the horrific terrorist attacks that killed so many Afghans in recent weeks. So I'm trying to better understand how this strategy is going to move Afghanistan forward. President Trump declared in August of last year that America's not nation building again. And so I'm not clear what exactly that means, because like Ms. Senator Young, I share the concern that governance is as big, if not bigger, issue in Afghanistan than the military situation. So if we're not nation building, does this mean that we're less committed to human rights, to fighting corruption, to promoting good governance? What, what exactly does that mean? I, I guess this is for you, um, Mr. Sullivan. Uh, the United States is committed to supporting an Afghan-led process that develops a, uh, a government that's suitable for the Afghan people and acceptable to them. We aren't going to dictate the terms of either a peace settlement between the Afghan government and the Taliban, for example. What are, we have certain irreducible benchmarks for a, a basic stability in the country so that, for example, you mentioned Taliban-controlled areas. Where the Taliban controls an area, there's massively increased drug, drug cultivation and production, decrease in security, has a dramatic effect on the Afghan economy. So we want to have a stable Afghanistan that is uh, not a, uh, a base for terrorism, as Secretary Shriver said, and then one that respects the Afghan constitution, which includes protections for women. Uh, those are our basic threat, those are our irreducible basic thresholds for uh, a, 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 a resolution of our engagement in Afghanistan. And we're continuing to support the Afghan efforts, both with personnel and with resources? Yes, we are. I met with General Nicholson when, when I was there last week, and Secretary Shriver can go into uh, to greater detail. We're providing um, both our, through our, with our NATO partners and uh, U.S. military support for Afghan security forces, army, police. A particular focus now is security in Kabul and developing a security force in Kabul to prevent the types of violent terrorist acts that we saw last month. Good. Um, on Pakistan, do we really believe that Pakistan has the ability to convince the Taliban to go to the negotiating table, as you suggested in your um, testimony? 
they certainly have the ability to urge the Taliban to do so. What we believe they do have the ability to do also is to expel them from sanctuaries in their country. They may not be able to actually drive them to the negotiating table, but they can help and they can eliminate sanctuaries in their country where they currently operate. Um, they have, and, and I'm not trying to make excuses for Pakistan, but they have over um, a period of time um, lost thousands of Pakistanis in the effort to throw the Taliban out and other terrorist groups out of their territory um, with some success but not entire success. And there has been a suggestion over the years that one of the challenges with the Haqqani network um, is their ties to ISI and whether the government would be able to withstand an effort to um, remove the Haqqani network because of the potential to create instability within the government. Do we believe that to be true? And if so, how, are, how is our Pakistan strategy accommodating that concern? Well, we certainly understand the challenges that, that, the, that Pakistan faces with these terrorist organizations within their borders. Some of them directed at Pakistan itself, others directed at other countries in the region, Afghanistan, India, elsewhere. Pakistan has suffered grievously uh, from terrorist attacks, as we all know and as I cited in my, my testimony. What we're looking for from Pakistan is more support from them against terrorist organizations that are outward focused in addition to their focus, the Pakistan government's efforts against terrorist organizations that threaten Pakistan. I understand it's a, delicate, uh, it's a delicate balance for Pakistan. We want to do all we can to support them in that effort. Uh, and we have provided an enormous amount of assistance, monetary and otherwise, to the Pakistani government. What we're looking for is an indication from them, more support directed at those outward-focused terrorist organizations. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, part of our new strategy calls for economic calls for integration of diplomatic and economic assets into our military effort. That sounds a little bit like provincial reconstruction teams that we did in, in Iraq for a while. Is that part of the goal in any way whatsoever? And I'll further I'll just elaborate on that a little bit. In, in, in Iraq, when we tried to bring over more of the Iraqi people to our side versus the terrorist side or the Hussein side. We pre created provincial reconstruction teams that used our military folks. In fact, in Gazaria, I was there with them personally when they did that, to make micro loans and things like that to help build the local businesses and their investment in them, as well as other participation like that with the State Department. Is anything like that being contemplated in Afghanistan? I think the idea of integrating our, our approaches is to try to achieve that same synergy of economic assistance and other support along with the military campaign. So although uh, it's structured somewhat differently in terms of the campaign, the, the best practices, lessons learned, I think it can still be applied when we ensure we're, we're knitted up as two departments in our overall efforts. Senator Schreiber, you made a very interesting comment in your, in your verbal statement. I didn't read your prepared statement, so it may be in there as well. But you said we were moving from, from measurement of accomplishment and not time. Is that correct? when we measure our success? Yes, sir, conditions-based. Yeah, that said to me a, a world of good, because when you use time, you say, well, we're going to stay there till the next time, and then we're gone. And we dealt with that uh, 
in the last administration for a long time. We kind of protracted our investment in the country. Now, by measuring accomplishment, we can actually see what we're doing to accomplish the ultimate goal, which is independence, regional cooperation, and hopefully a lessening dependence on terrorism and the Taliban and people like that. Mr. Sullivan, is the Afghan compact one of those benchmark measurements we're going to use to measure our accomplishments in, in Afghanistan? Yes, it is, Senator. In fact, as Senator Young mentioned, it's got a number of, within it, the compact has a number of measurements, benchmark measurements for uh, corruption, economic development, et cetera, that we will use to measure the progress of the Afghan government. What do you, what do you see as the consequences for not reaching those benchmarks for the players involved? Well, ultimately, for the players involved, for the Afghan government, it's the success of, of, uh, of their effort to, to govern the country, to govern effectively, to have a democracy in Afghanistan, to eliminate corruption, to promote the rule of law, to develop the economy. It's in the Afghan self-interest to meet those benchmarks, and they themselves have adopted those benchmarks and advocate for them. This Thursday at Fort Benning, we're standing up a group, and I understand General Mattis is going to be there. I heard he just made that announcement today at the Four Armed Services Committee a Security Forces Assistance Brigade at Fort Benning that will be going to Afghanistan, I think, March the 1st. That's a significant commitment. My state of Georgia with Fort Benning, with Robbins, with so many things, with Fort Stewart, with the investment we have in manpower and material going to Afghanistan, our success is a huge thing that's looked forward to by the people in my state. What are, what are these, what is this group that's going to go from Georgia come March 1st? What is it going to add to our effort in Afghanistan, and what are we going to look for them to achieve? Our goal, Senator, is to integrate uh, those brigades into the train, advise, and assist structure and the mission, which is to ultimately create a more lethal and effective Afghan security force, uh, as well as provide some key capabilities that are, uh, that are gaps for the Afghan forces currently, uh, but primarily it's, it's the train, advise, assist role that they will help with to improve the Afghan forces so ultimately they can operate more independently. And I sense we're making a bigger effort for training of Afghan troops and Afghan resources to, in their own fighting for themselves. Is that correct? That, that's a major focus, yes, sir. There's a Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. We're trying to train the Afghan pilots now under a three-year program of training, which is another investment we're making in training the Afghans to do for themselves, what we in the past have been doing for them. Is that correct? Yeah, the Air Force modernization is another key piece. It includes not only American equipment, but the, but the training piece so that they can provide that key enabler to their, op, their uh, operations. Thank you both for what you're doing. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Oh, th uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding the hearing. It's been nearly a an year and a half since the committee has uh, held a hearing on the United States' longest war, so I appreciate the opportunity to both of you for your testimony. It's been nearly six months since the administration announced its new strategy for South Asia, which as far as I can tell is uh, quite similar to the old strategy. Uh, I understand the administration is focused on conditions-based metrics for success and eventual withdrawal of U.S. forces, but I hope we can get a little more clarity to uh, exactly what are our desired outcomes for our troops and for our foreign policy goals in Afghanistan. And Secretary Sullivan, you, in your testimony and uh, as, as well as in responses, you've, you've talked about a number of meetings and consultations you've had during your tenure. But I haven't heard about the role 
of USAID or our plans to support good governance structures or economic development, critical components of successful uh, countries can, uh, are we talking about, for example, a civilian surge here to try to create the good governance? I think some of the reasons the Taliban has some successes is because the central government isn't as responsive to its people and its needs as it should be. So can you speak to that? Uh, it, that's a, a very important component, Senator. I'll give you some specific examples. USAID is providing support to the Afghan government to, uh, to run their elections coming up in this year, parliamentary elections, presidential elections next year. Uh, my message to President Ghani, which he was receptive to and embraced, was how important it was that the Afghans consider their record of commitment to democracy. They're, they've had uh, a number of elections, some more successful than others, uh, in the last 16 or 17 years. But it's important that these elections go forward. USAID is providing support to the government. I met with the... Uh, uh, opposition political leaders while I was there at the embassy to talk to them about the importance of free and fair elections and the support that the United States government through USAID was going to be providing toward that end. Let me ask you, since you, your testimony says that elections are vital, uh, what specific diplomatic, developmental, and governance tools through USAID and state are you willing to or utilizing to support uh, those? And what's the realistic time frame for you to uh, be part of delivering it through those entities? The time frame is tight. We, uh, the original schedule for parliamentary elections was this July. Uh, based on my conversations in Kabul, that will likely slip to this fall, probably October, but it can't slip to next year. They've got to be done before the presidential election. And what are we doing in terms of Specific resources? support, for example, uh, funding and providing advice on creating voter rolls uh, and uh, voter assistance. What we do here in the United States to support our elections, providing both advice and monetary assistance to the election commission, both at the, uh, at the national level and at the provincial level, so that the vote is, uh, is fair and accurate. Let me ask you, would you agree that the Taliban are able to build marginal support for some key constituencies largely due to their disillusionment and distrust of the central government in Kabul? Yeah, I think the Taliban is a, uh, is a broad term. There are elements of the Taliban that are more successful and more influential than others, uh, and some have... Uh, have more of a political following than others. One of the strategies of President Ghani is in, uh, in engaging the Taliban to the extent that we can in political discussions is peeling off those elements of the Taliban that can be uh, recon we can reconcile with and then going after those elements of the Taliban that are, not, that are uh, despite all of our efforts and entreaties dedicated to violence and terrorism. Well, I, I say that because in 2014 I was pleased uh, that the Senate passed the Afghanistan Accountability Act which laid out a framework for the United States to work collaboratively with Afghan and international partners to implement meaningful reforms to promote accountability and transparency in the Afghan government. And I hope we can revisit the legislation to ensure the committee is effectively overseeing diplomatic and developmental efforts that the United States is making in Afghanistan and ensure that we are supporting institutional reforms to safeguard governance structures. And I look forward to 
speaking to the chairman uh, about that opportunity. Let me just take one last moment. At our hearing on the 2017 Trafficking in Persons Report back in July, you offered to brief me on the department's determinations regarding the child soldiers list. As I understand it, the secretary decided to include a waiver for Afghanistan despite the recommendation of his staff, knowing full well that Afghanistan employs child soldiers. You also offered to brief me on a written plan submitted by the Cuban government to become eligible for a waiver from a downgrade to tier three and clarification of Malaysia's upgrade despite clear statutory language directing otherwise. It's been nearly seven months since that hearing and despite it, uh, repeated attempts from my office uh, and requests uh, to follow on, we have received no information. So can you uh, commit yourself after seven months to give me the briefing you said you'd give me and to provide the information you'd said you'd provide? I, I, I apologize for that failure, Senator. I commit to that now. I wasn't aware of the requests, but I can't blame anyone else than myself. I made those commitments and I will follow up immediately. I appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your service. Uh, Secretary Shriver, I want to kind of go back to Secretary Isaac, or Senator Isaacson's question about measuring accomplishments. I'm the accountant on the panel here. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't need exact numbers, but I want, you know, basically your, your assessment of troop levels of our enemies. You know, wh where is the, you know, what, what is the number of uh, members of the Taliban right now? I'm not sure I can give you a number that I have great confidence in. Um, a ballpark. I mean, we're talking thousands, tens of thousands. Where, where, where are we at? Yeah, I, in terms of actual dedicated fighters, um, with your permission, I'd feel more comfortable taking the question um, because there, as the Deputy Secretary said, they, there's different variations of Taliban, and, and they do have a tendency to, to melt away during uh, non-fighting season. So if, if, with your permission, I'll take the question so and we'll provide I, I you. I definitely want you know, that kind of data. Yes, sir. What, what percent would you say are the terrorist element? You know, maybe this is for Secretary Sullivan. Is it is it 10 percent? Is it a small percentage? I mean, is there a... I'm sorry, Senator, what, what... What percentage of the Taliban would you consider the terrorist element versus those that we might be able to negotiate with? I, I'd have to defer to my, my colleagues, both at DOD and the intelligence community, uh, community on that. Okay. Um, so you, you can expect that in terms of uh, written questions for the record. Yes, Senator. Uh, same, I'd like, same assessment of the Haqqani Network. And, oh, before I move on, is your assessment that the, that the force of Taliban is growing? Is it declining? Is it stabilizing? I think we will have a better assessment of that uh, when the traditional fighting season starts and we can see the impact on the battlefield of our new strategy. Um, again, there's, there's different sort of variations of dedicated fighters and, and um, uh, those that are supportive uh, politically, ideologically, but not uh, dedicated necessarily to picking up arms. So, well, so what I'm going to want is an assessment of what you thought the size of the, the troop level was back 16 years ago maybe 10 years ago. I mean, I, I kind of want a trend here. I want to see what, what progress or lack of progress is, is being made against the Taliban, Haqqani Network, and then let me ask about ISIS. Is that a growing presence? Do you, do you have any assessment of, of how many ISIS fighters are now located in Afghanistan? 
again, we'll, we'll get assistance from the intelligence community to give us better figures. I know there is concern particularly about uh, returning foreign fighters uh, given developments in Syria, Iraq. So it's something that we're watching very carefully and, and we'll provide you an assessment. So you mentioned, and I was going to go the, here next, um, what is then the change of strategy? Uh, there used, used to have the winter pause, they would kind of melt back in, we'd kind of leave them alone. Uh, can you describe in greater detail exactly what we're doing as well as any change of rules of engagement? Sure. From a U.S. military perspective, uh, there, there are several elements. One is, is the uplift, the reinforce part of it. Uh, and, and key to that is, is the role that any additional forces would play. Uh, so that relates to the uh, realignment of resources as well. Um, we're involved in trying to increase the lethality and capability of the Afghan security forces. Part of that is an equipment uh, 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 provision. Part of that is training. Uh, part, of them, part of that is actually being an enabler to some of their operations. I think what we can say in terms of another change is the Afghan uh, approach to the conflict in addition to uh, trying to, to hold gains, there's, there's more offensive action taking the fight to the Taliban. We're helping with that to fill in some key capabilities as, as enablers. Uh, ultimately, we want uh, an Afghan force that can operate more independently and less relying on the support of U.S. and NATO forces. But is it safe to say we're keeping up the pressure even during the winter months versus the last administration where we eased off? Is that, is that no, the overall tempo is down, but the pressure and the, and the operations do continue to some extent, yes. Is that one of the reasons, uh, Secretary Sullivan, that maybe we're seeing these terrorist attacks? Well, I just wanted to add to that. When I met with General Nicholson uh, last week, uh, particularly with respect to operations against uh, ISIS, that those have, have continued, and in fact there have been uh, in recent days significant ac uh, operations ongoing. So. There, there, there is a fighting season uh, traditionally in Afghanistan, but uh, our our operations in Afghanistan are trying to break that uh, break that mold a little bit. Okay, well, I've run out of time, but I'll definitely be submitting those questions for the record. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for uh, being here. Appreciate your service. As has been mentioned, um, things are not going well today in Afghanistan. The uh, U.S.-backed coalition controls less territory than ever before, insurgents control more than ever before, a series of very high-profile attacks. Um, and uh, at the foundation, uh, I think, lies some pretty significant confusion about what U.S. policy is. And I want to explore, uh, as uh, Senator Shaheen did, a few of those areas. Um, maybe most significantly is this administration's position on the peace process moving forward. Um, I appreciated your answer, uh, Secretary Sullivan, in response to Chairman Corker, that you believed, uh, and I think you're representing the State Department's position, uh, that there is a role for the Taliban uh, in a peace process going forward. Ambassador Haley mirrored uh, that, um, uh, that statement uh, earlier this year. Um, but here's what the President of the United States said a week ago, and he was definitive. He said, quote, we don't want to talk with the Taliban, there may be a time, but it's going to be a long time. That seems to be in direct contradiction to the position that you just articulated 
to this committee that you believe, the State Department believes, there is room for the Taliban in those negotiations. So you can see that the world and those involved in the peace process may be pretty confused about what the U.S. position is. What is it? Is it the position that you articulated before the committee, or is it the position that the president articulated a week ago? Well, I think the president's position, uh, and I actually had the opportunity to speak with President Ghani uh, shortly after uh, the president, President Trump's statement. Uh, and I think President Ghani's view and President Trump's view are fairly well aligned. I think what President, president Trump was expressing was a reaction to uh, the terrorist activities, of the, the horrible terrorist activities last month in Kabul. Significant elements of the Taliban are not prepared to negotiate, and it may take a long time before they are willing to negotiate. That was the thrust, of, as I understand it, of the president's remarks, and that's certainly the view that President Ghani has. He's uh, extremely upset about what happened, and uh, he wants to take a uh, very hard stance against those elements of the Taliban that slaughtered innocent men, women, and children on the streets of Kabul. I, I, but you just said in, in a response to Senator Corker that you believe there is a role for the Taliban. The president didn't put conditions on this. He said, we don't want to talk with the Taliban. So do we believe that they have a place at the negotiating table, or do they not? They do. I don't think that there is a place for the Taliban, for those elements of the Taliban that plotted those terrorist attacks last month. They're not showing an indication that they're willing to sit at the table. I think that's what the president was, the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the sentiment that he was expressing. I understand you're in a very difficult position when the president adds no subtlety to these statements, but that's not what he said. He said definitively, we don't want to talk with the Taliban. And you can understand that when the president makes statements, uh, they hold much more water than the statements that the, uh, that the secretary may make. I think there's still enormous amounts of, I know there's enormous amounts of confusion over here. We have directly contradictory statements. Um, uh, uh, Secretary uh, um, uh, Schreiber, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, transparency. Um, there were some disturbing reports recently that the Department of Defense limited the special inspector regarding information that they could make public. Uh, they were informed that um, they were not to release public data on the number of districts, the population living in them, controlled or influenced by the Afghan government or by insurgents or contested by both. This is following on instructions from the Department of Defense that the special inspector was not allowed to release uh, numbers regarding losses by U.S.-backed uh, Afghan forces. Um, this is the first time that um, uh, the special inspector has been told they can't uh, disclose information that was previously public and is not classified. Um, I, I'm very concerned that uh, the Department of Defense is trying to uh, pull the cover over data that we all use, including our constituents use, to try to understand what's happening in Afghanistan, given some um, really disturbing trend lines. Um, uh, this doesn't um, uh, this doesn't suggest that this administration wants to uh, make sure that my constituents have enough information to make good decisions going forward. Can you speak to the limitations that have been placed on the special inspector's reports to Congress? Well, we're, we're going to work very closely with the special investigator to make sure that there, there is the transparency that, that you need that I think we all benefit from. Um, there are there may be considerations in the future about operational security, the kinds of things that you don't want to telegraph to the enemy, but I can, I can tell you our goal is to be transparent. We need 
the support of the people. We need the support of this committee and, and the Congress, and I think the, the way to do that is to be transparent and open. So we will continue to work with the special investigator to achieve that. Um, why was Sigur stopped from reporting losses for U.S.-backed Afghan government? They were uh, unable to include the number of casualties among uh, Afghan troops. Uh, I think there, there may be some in misinformation. I think there was some information that Sigar uh, uh, classified themselves, and that may have been based on what information was provided by uh, the Afghans and, and their own classification. But I, I, as a general matter, uh, Senator Murphy, uh, let me tell you, we will, we will work to resolve that, and we will work to be transparent. It's important to us. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Paul. You know, um, after 16 years, uh, thousands of lives, uh, probably a trillion dollars spent, the Afghans don't seem to be able to defend themselves. They, you know, maybe people say if we left tomorrow, the Taliban would take over, so that, therefore we have to stay. When will the Taliban, when will the Afghans be ready to defend themselves, Mr. Shriver? I'd be hesitant to put a, a, a time frame on it. I, I think the, the scrutiny is understandable. I, I would share every frustration that you mentioned about the, the time and investment. I do think the, the approach that we've adopted, uh, we're six months into it, we're not into the, the new fighting season, uh, traditional fighting season yet, uh, I think uh, gives us a better chance to achieve results on the battlefield, which will give us a better chance at the political settlement. The original mandate from Congress was to go after those who attacked us on 9-11 or aided or abetted those who attacked us. Um, who's left over there that aided or abetted the attack on 9-11? Specific individuals that we're still looking for that aided or attacked it or were involved with the 9-11 attack? Uh, Senator, uh, I believe there are both uh, elements of al-Qaeda that are still remnants of Al-Qaeda that are still in existence in Afghanistan, as, as well as uh, the more lethal uh, development of ISIS-K in Afghanistan. Right. So those would be the terrorist elements that we would be most... most well, there's a real question, though, whether or not these people want to come attack us here, whether they want to control Afghanistan, you know, whether this is a civil war in Afghanistan, and by all appearances, it is a civil war in Afghanistan. And so I think there is a real question whether this has anything left to do with 9-11. You could say the, you know, the Tories favored, you know, not letting us leave, and there's still Tories in England. I mean, I mean, are we going to be discussing this in 250 years from now? Um, I think there's an argument to be made that our national security is actually made more perilous the more we spend and the longer we stay there. And I'm not saying we don't go after those who attack us and plot to attack us, but uh, everybody comes and says we're not nation-building, when in reality we are nation-building, and then some want more nation-building. They don't think we're doing enough nation-building. And, um, you know, if you look at the list of things we've spent money on, $45 million on a natural gas gas station in the defense budget because we're greening up Afghanistan. We've got to put a green footprint on Afghanistan. Well, it turned out nobody had a natural gas car over there, so then we bought them natural gas cars. Then nobody had any money, so we got them credit cards so they could use it at the natural gas gas station over there. That's absurd, and people are horrified by what we've done with that. We spent $79 million on an embassy in Mazar al-Sharif, never opened. It was all done, I think, at, at Clinton and Holbrook's request, 
and yet they, they looked at it finally and they found out there was a courtyard with tall buildings all around it and said, hey, we can't have an embassy where everybody can shoot down into the courtyard. And I think it was never occupied. We signed a 10-year ten, ten lease on it. Millions and millions getting to the trillions of dollars spent. There is no military solution. Um, you know, we don't even know who to negotiate with. We don't know who the good guys in the Taliban are, if there are any, or who are, are not. We don't seem to be very forthright with how many people we're fighting. Are we fighting, if we can't answer Senator Johnson's questions in round terms, 10,000 Taliban, 100,000 Taliban, a million Taliban, sure they slink away. We had 100,000 troops there. We can win. They all slink away when there's 100,000 troops facing them, then they come back when there's not. How are we going to defeat them with 10,000 if we couldn't defeat them with 100,000? Maybe it's time we have a frank discussion, Congress, whether or not there is a military solution in Afghanistan. We're spending $50 billion a year. That could be better spent. I'd give the military all a pay raise and bring all the people home from Afghanistan. I'd upgrade the nuclear arsenal. There are all kinds of things we could do with that $50 billion a year, but it's just being thrown down you know, a hatch in Afghanistan. So I think we really have to reassess this. I don't even know how we get to negotiate with the Taliban if we don't know who we're going to, you know, we're going to negotiate with the people who just exploded something? Obviously not. But then are there, there's a good guy form of Taliban meeting somewhere? We don't know that. We're in an impossible situation. And so I see no hope for it, and I, I feel sorry for putting the military in this position. And we shouldn't be nation building. We're not very good at it. And I just hope that somebody will come here someday from an administration and say, it's time that we reassess what we're doing in Afghanistan. So uh, I don't see a bright future for Afghanistan, and uh, I don't fault the military. I just don't think there is a military solution. Thanks. Well, I, I actually, would you like to respond to that? Uh, sure. Uh, Senator, I, I think our policy uh, acknowledges that there isn't a military solution uh, or a complete solution. The military has to be part of the solution, and we have to train and equip uh, the Afghans to fight this war against uh, against the Taliban. Um, everybody is. But we have for 16 years. I mean, right. when when's enough enough? Uh, I understand it's uh, it's it's America's longest war, uh, but our security interests in Afghanistan and the region are significant enough. Our commitment to the Afghan government made over uh, 16 years. Um, we are doing with the minimal amount of uh, troops and money that we think can be, uh, be committed to back the Afghan government in their struggle against the Taliban. To get back to your original point about terrorists, everybody's against, even the Taliban's against ISIS. It's a very complex battlefield, so the Taliban is fighting ISIS, uh, and it's a very complex political and military situation, and our strategy is trying to navigate those complex waters in a way that supports the Afghan government, both militarily and politically, so that we can get the Taliban to the negotiating table and at least negotiate with elements of the Taliban that are not going to are not committed to blowing up men, women, and children on the streets of Kabul, that there's a more reasonable element, which we believe there is, that will uh, negotiate a settlement to a more stable situation. Mm -hmm. And just out of curiosity, uh, what, what is our annual spend rate right now, all in? For Afghanistan yeah. on, on assistance, well, it's... Just all, but, but all in, and... 
I can give you, for, for assistance, it's roughly $780 million uh, a year, but... Yeah, but I'm talking about uh, for the security support and, yeah. Yeah, depending on how you calculate it, I mean, direct support Afghan security uh, fund has been roughly, uh, this last, uh, pardon me, the current year we're in is about $5 billion. Uh, we support directly the U.S. forces that are, are in-country, and I believe that's roughly $13 billion. And then there are supporting elements to the overall military effort, um, uh, which might bring the total number up closer to $45 billion. Now, now, just out of curiosity, so we, we jump from the $18 billion you're talking about to 40, $45 billion. How? Uh, tell me how we... A big, a big piece of that is is uh, efforts outside the immediate country, the immediate theater for logistic support. So it does depend on how you you calculate that number. Um, there's there's a big logistics chain. There's a big support chain. And and so really, a lot of that would be contractors and others who are helping support the direct efforts that are underway by our own troops. Correct, and other military elements that are that are supportive of the in-theater, in-country fight, yes. And again, I'm, I'm, this is just for edification here. So all in, um, what, what do you think our annual effort is there? So, so including the, the State Department's efforts, the other departments uh, that are underway uh, doing other kinds of things, we've got multiple uh, departments working together to help uh, what is occurring in Afghanistan transpire in a positive way, plus the, the efforts we have with contractors, troops, and others, what would you put the overall number at on an annual basis? Well, this is back of the envelope. The, the assistance uh, piece just mentioned would, would put it uh, above 45 billion, close to 46, but certainly uh, we can break that out and give detailed numbers and how we arrive at that. I was gonna ask if we could get that breakdown number because it is a, that's a large number. Uh, and it looks like about 2% of the total budgets in diplomacy in trying to find an end to the war, and 98% is pursuing the security war efforts. And um, I think some of us wonder if that's the right mix. So I, I just, uh, I'm using part of my time now, I don't usually ask questions on the front end. I support a conditions-based effort, and I think that's the only way you're ever gonna get to a place where people are gonna negotiate with you. Um, I understand there are, there are elements pushing and you know, the Taliban's fighting ISIS. We had, uh, it, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting group of characters, if you will, that we're dealing with in Afghanistan. I think the point that has been made and is true, uh, I mean, the fact is that the Afghan, if you took their entire GDP, uh, it couldn't support the security efforts that are underway. Just wouldn't pay for it. And all of this discussion about uh, eventually mining precious metals up in the mountains that have no railway to them. I mean, I, I've been hearing that for forever, and I know it's likely not to occur during my lifetime. So I think the, the point is well made. I mean, we are, in fact, here for a long, long haul, and I think it is true that without the support that we have, they've got a 30 percent, um, uh, you know, 30 percent of the folks who are part of the Afghan military and security leave each year. So we've had this, you know, we've watched training exercises there. They just don't stay. Uh, they go back home. 
Um, obviously, they've had significant fatalities. If I could, on our own front, uh, over the last 12 months of activity, um, how many fatalities have we had with U.S. or and or NATO forces? Again, I'll, I'll have to take to give you, a, I'd, I'd prefer not to give you an incorrect statistic, but um, uh, it's been relatively relatively light since our new strategy, but uh, I'll, I'll get you an actual number. And as we look at embedding some of our best and brightest uh, a little bit more deeply into the Afghan operations, um, what's our sense there? I know we've had conversations where there have been concerns about some of the most talented folks that we have serving in our military being embedded in that way, and are we anticipating that casualty rate to increase, or do we feel like we can continue on this low casualty rate uh, trend? Well, our our hope and our expectation is based on increasing the capabilities of the Afghan forces themselves. Uh, they'll be more successful on the battlefield, and even if we're uh, providing a train and assist, advise and assist function or an enabling function, uh, the effectiveness of the force themselves would, would result in less casualties. Um, we'll certainly learn more about the effectiveness piece as if and when the fighting picks up in the traditional fighting season. Senator Markley. Uh, th uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to both of you for your testimony and, and uh, Secretary Sullivan. Uh, thank you for your, your personal assistance with the Oregon resident in, in Sudan who, who has been freed in large part because of your, your, your efforts. As we talk about these macro issues, I have an enormous amount of, of uh, frustration, uh, feeling like I hear the same story every couple years. We adopt a modestly different strategy and we say, well, we're turning the corner. We, we heard from uh, President Ghani in October of last year, we're turning the corner. We heard from NATO Commander General Nicholson, we're turning the corner. But what did we hear back in 2011? We heard from President Barack Obama that we'd turned the corner after the surge deployment. We heard from Defense Secretary Robert Gates that we had enjoyed a lot of success and we're turning the corner. We heard from General Petraeus that the Afghan forces had turned a corner. And we have the same set of, of, of hopes and aspirations that somehow we'll keep training and somehow now the training will actually result in a fighting force that, that fiercely wants to fight for the government of Afghanistan, and yet we never get there. We continually believe and, and hope that there's going to be a marvelous development to a functional government, but we don't get there. Right, right now, we have the vice president out of the country not being allowed to return. We have a growth in ethnic divisions within the political establishment from Uzbek to Tajik to Pashtun. We have um, essentially paralysis between the, the national unity government in, in terms of the CEO, uh, Abdullah Abdullah, and, and the president. Uh, and uh, then we have other aspirations like, but now we're really turning the corner on corruption. Well, we, we cherry-pick little pieces to say there's a little bit of improvement here or there, but in general, no. Massive corruption that destabilizes all of the efforts, of the, whatever efforts the Afghanistan government is making, but also our money has been helping to drive the corruption uh, because essentially every, the price on every position has become higher because of the sort of money that we have, have, have poured into the, the country. And then there's just the very fact that our presence remains a recruiting mechanism for the Taliban. This sense of deep in the soul 
of the, the villagers of Afghanistan that they don't like foreigners goes back and they stopped throughout history they have stopped one foreign invasion after another after another and I recall the, the words of uh, uh, poet Robert Kipling uh, who often wrote about wars around the world but his, his poem about Afghanistan closed with something along the lines of if you're wounded and lying on the Afghanistan plane roll over on your rifle and blow out your brains before the women of Afghanistan come out and carve up what remains. And so we have these set of, yes, we're, we're, we, we'll get there on corruption, but we don't. Yes, we'll get there on training, but we don't. Yes, we'll get there on a politically effective government, but we don't. Meanwhile, we just we continue to paint a very rosy scenario. And we heard a very ro rosy scenario from you all today. And I feel like we're going to grip this as a nation, as a government. We have to have a really honest conversation about our perpetual aspirations that just aren't realized and why they're not realized and why they may be impossible to realize. So one of those aspirations always is the political settlement. That's another piece of that. Why do the Taliban want a political settlement? They now control more territory than they controlled since 2001. They're gaining ground. They're creating chaos. They're getting through the perimeter of the capital and assaulting an international hotel, uh, blowing up key locations, uh, packing an ambulance full of explosives, and somehow it gets through our perimeter and into the middle of the city and blows things up. Massive explosion. This is my plea and hope that we can have an honest discussion about these aspirations that we keep putting forward in slightly different versions, but we're really not gaining ground. And I just, I'll just throw that out there for your, your all's thoughts and comments. Well, I, uh, I don't know that there's a lot you said, Senator, that I would necessarily disagree with. I don't think that there's a rosy situation in Kabul, and I don't think President Ghani would agree there is. Uh, the attacks last month were a real shock. To, uh, to many people in the government and to a number of the, the Afghan people, NGOs, and political leaders that, that I met with. There's no doubt that there is a serious challenge we face in dealing with Afghanistan. It took us months to come up with the policy that we developed, the regional policy that we developed, the South Asia strategy, because it is that challenging, the situation you posited is as challenging as it is. One option is simply to withdraw. We decided we couldn't do that. We've come up with, and we're proposing, this policy. It's a regional policy. As I mentioned in my opening statement, I met with the foreign ministers in New York for the five uh, Central Asian uh, countries that uh, border Afghanistan to the north. We're also working with India. India's made billions of investment in, in Afghanistan. It can't just be the United States that solves Afghanistan. It's a regional strategy. Um, I don't want to come here and say uh, Henry Kissinger liked that peace is at hand. I can't say that to you, but we've got a policy that we believe in. We want to stick to it. We want to persevere, and we think it is the outcome and the significance to U.S. national security is such that uh, we can't fold our tents just because there were terrorist attacks in Kabul last month. We need to persevere, 
but I don't want to leave you with the impression that we've got a Pollyannish view that this is we're, we're going to uh, you know have peace break out this summer uh, in in Kabul. My time is out, so I'll just close with this this comment, which is my concern about no set timetables and no clear metrics for success just means that that we're setting ourselves up to accept whatever level of failure occurs and still just say we're staying, we're staying, we're staying, because it's always hard in any situation where we've inserted troops to ever say the strategy is not working, we can do it, the, the, the eighth twist on the old strategy, call it a new strategy, it's going to fail. At some, some point, we have to recognize that there's fundamentals here that make the direction of our policy ineffective. So I'm, just one more interjection, maybe another one later. It, it does appear that uh, in Iraq, we, we left, we came back. Um, we, uh, it does appear there's a, a reasonable chance of the country holding together if, with proper governance and becoming a, a, a more fully functioning country, but they have resources. Afghan has no resources. Uh, Afghanistan never going to have any resources uh, that compare to the Iraq situation. Um, I mean, is there is there a credible end? I mean, even in the event there's reconciliation with the Taliban, um, if you will, paint to us, paint the picture. Of, of what it would look like in the event there was an actual. They, are, they do control more territory. I know with this new effort, we expect to gain another 20% and get things back to where they were a few years ago, but they're still gonna control a tremendous amount of territory. Uh, we're still gonna have you know, a tremendous amount of illicit behavior taking place. Um, in the event they were to, to reconcile somehow with the current government, with Ghani and others, uh, Give us a picture of what that would look like going forward and, and, and what our role would be. Well, I think uh, the, uh, the picture has to be, as I, as I said to Senator Merkley, Afghanistan integrated into a region as opposed to simply focused on Afghanistan itself. Because as you point out, Afghanistan doesn't sit on a trillion dollars worth of oil wealth the way Iraq does. Um, a, a large amount of uh, which is now funding government operations in, uh, in Iraq. We've got to integrate Afghanistan into the region. Uh, there's been discussions with, uh, with the Uzbek and Tajik governments on uh, transmission of electricity into Afghanistan, for example. Um, the discussions with India. India wants to do business. Indians want to do business in Afghanistan. And ultimately, as we've urged President Ghani, the bilateral relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan has to improve. If that does, then we think that there is a viable future economically for Afghanistan. The key, in my opinion, is the relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan. If we can't solve that, this problem isn't gonna go away. And uh, it's in Pakistan's interest to solve the situation in Afghanistan as well. Senator Gardner. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both, uh, Secretary Shriver and Secretary Sullivan, for your time today. Uh, I, too, want to reflect what Senator Isaacson talked about, um, the men and women in Fort Benning, and talk a little bit about uh, my gratefulness for our men and women in uniform, our armed services uh, in the spring, uh, I believe, uh, Fort Carson, Colorado, home to Fort Carson in Colorado, home to the 4th Infantry Division, will be deploying troops to Afghanistan uh, later this spring. So uh, thank them for their service and obviously uh, the men and women in uniform around the globe who continue to stand up for our country and our country's interests. Uh, according to a BBC News report, and perhaps you talked about this earlier today, on January 31st, uh, the news report stated, the Taliban fighters whom U.S.-led forces spent billions of dollars trying to defeat are now openly active in 70% of Afghanistan. The study conducted by BBC shows that the Taliban are now in full control of 14 districts and have an active and open physical presence in a further 263 districts, significantly higher than previous estimates of Taliban strength. Could you, could you address that a little bit? And when we were in Afghanistan two years ago, I believe it was, we met with General Campbell, then General Campbell, uh, and uh, talked about uh, authorities that we were operating under in Afghanistan. And we've seen those authorities change, and that has made a difference in Afghanistan. Uh, but with this BBC report, do we need an additional change to those authorities, and what does that mean? Uh, we, we've certainly seen these reports, and we're concerned about uh, reports of, of Taliban gains in some of the rural, less populated areas. Um, they don't control any major population center. They've been denied their strategic goal of overrunning a, a province. Um, but we're clearly not where we want to be. So part of our, our train advise assist mission and our enabling function is to uh, help the Afghan security forces uh, win on the, on the offense. And then they ultimately have to be able to hold territory as well. Uh, that will change, hopefully, the calculus of the Taliban and understand that they can't prevail on the battlefield and, and will ultimately lead to a political process. Would you like to address the issue of, uh, of authorities? If, if current authorities for U.S. forces operating against insurgent elements, uh, do they need to be expanded or refined uh, on top of what has already been done? I, I think where we stand right now, uh, our, our commander in the field is comfortable with and our military um, uh, officials are comfortable with. There, there will be a process of continuing to evaluate the effectiveness of our support to the Afghan forces and, and through continual evaluation, uh, there may be a, a case in the future where we'd want to revisit that, but at this point I think we're comfortable. Secretary Sullivan, you mentioned in your last answer that uh, we need to integrate Afghanistan into the region. This is a region that also includes China, Iran, uh, Russia. Uh, there have been reports, obviously, of Iran and Iranian and Russian support of the Taliban. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're seeing uh, in terms of Iranian and, and Russian involvement? Uh, certainly. We, we've seen with respect to, uh, to Russian involvement, and I, I was up at the UN Security Council a couple of weeks ago and discussed this. Um, we've seen uh, Russian support for elements of uh, the Taliban as a hedging strategy and some accusations that the United States is supporting ISIS uh, you know, false information campaign. This is the, the conspiracy theory they're trying to generate. Trying to generate, uh, very unhelpful and, and of course, wildly uh, inaccurate. Uh, so the Russian influence has not been welcome. Uh, there is a, a, a Shia minority population in Afghanistan. Afghanistan shares a long border with uh, with Iran, uh, just as Iraq and Iran uh, have to coexist as neighbors. So does Afghanistan and Iran. 
what we're concerned about is pernicious influence by Iran that would undermine uh, Afghan sovereignty, as we are with respect to Iran's influence in, uh, in Iraq. China's made uh, investments in Afghanistan, um, and I think we're looking for uh, all countries in the region to support a peaceful, prosperous Afghanistan. It's not just going to be the United States that's going to be able to, uh, to achieve that, uh, that ultimate goal. Yeah, thank you. When you say Russian, uh, Russia's support for elements of the Taliban, what, what are you referring to? There are, uh, there are reports that, uh, that Russian, uh, Russia has provided support to, uh, to groups in northern Afghanistan that are uh, aligned with the, uh, with the Taliban. And uh, it's sort of a hedging strategy. It's playing both sides, dealing with the, the Ghani government in Kabul, but also supporting, uh, supporting the Taliban. Uh, and we're not willing to go to the peace table today with the Taliban because of uh, their violent terrorist activities in Kabul. Uh, elements uh, of the uh, Taliban, at least, we believe, are dealing with uh, some parts of the Russian government. And Secretary Shriver, I was going to shift a little bit to Asia, but we're out of time, so uh, I'll, I'll yield back, and thank you both for testifying. Senator Markley. I mean, uh, sorry, Markey. I do, I do that often. Yeah. Sorry, sorry about that. No, no problem. Um, I don't mind. I don't know about Jeff, but I don't mind. But um, the, um, you know, so I thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I think that we can agree that the United States needed to take swift action uh, and decisive action after September 11th. It was important to reduce the likelihood that Afghanistan would continue to be a sanctuary for terrorists uh, who would be seeking to harm Americans. Um, the, um, the December 2017 st uh, statement uh, of the national security strategy is that the United States will give priority to strengthening states like Afghanistan. Uh, yet the national defense strategy released the following month stated that the central challenge to U.S. prosperity and security is the reemergence of long-term strategic co uh, competition, not fragile states like Afghanistan. Uh, I think, Mr. Shriver, I heard you say that we are now spending $45 billion a year in Afghanistan. Is that the number that you used? Again, it depends on how it's calculated, but bringing in uh, elements outside of theater that are in support, yeah. uh, you could you could have that number and we can provide the breakdown. Yep. So $45 billion a year is an amazing amount of money to be spent just by comparison. Uh, Andrew Kolodny, uh, who works at Brandeis uh, University, and he's the uh, director of their opioid research um, facility, he said that if you just took two months of um, Afghanistan spending um, and dedicated it towards the opioid crisis. We could have an opioid center in every single county in the United States of America. Uh, and uh, just in Massachusetts alone, we had 2,000 people die from opioid overdoses last year. 75% of them had fentanyl in their system. And 
Um, we, don't, we still don't have any more than 20% of Americans who are in treatment, who need it, who would be qualified for it. So <clears throat> we, we could be looking at and we could be looking at a Vietnam War every single year in America, just from opioids, uh, and the funding is completely inadequate. So, um, so I guess from my perspective, as you look at priorities, in saving American lives, making sure that we're protecting uh, people, including veterans who are back, who don't receive the treatment which they need, um, I'd like to ask you just to reflect upon that and the amount of money which we are spending there, knowing that it does come out of services like that, that uh, could save lives, could save tens of thousands of lives um, if, um, if the resources were there to provide that kind of help. Would either of you like to speak to that issue, that resource allocation issue? I think we need to be mindful of the costs, and I'm, I, we certainly welcome the oversight and the scrutiny, and, and we should be held to task if, if we're making gains and, and uh, getting closer to reaching our objectives. Very fair and important questions to ask. I think we look at the enduring interests we have, and, and that was the starting point when the new strategy was developed, looking at a region with two nuclear-armed countries, looking at a region that harbors all these foreign terrorist organizations. Um, and we think we've developed a strategy that will give us a chance for success. There, but as the Deputy Secretary said earlier, there's, there's no uh, attempt to paint a rosy scenario. These are significant challenges, to be sure. Mr. Sullivan. Yes. Uh, as, as Secretary Shriver said, it is, uh, it's an enormous cost, and you've, you've uh, drawn a stark contrast with what we could do with that money. Um, the assessment we made in this administration was that the, uh, the threat to U.S. national security from a withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan was such that we needed to make that commitment. And the problem that we face is, and I'll just give you an example from the State Department, we make a commitment to have our embassy in Kabul. The number of U.S. direct hires, State Department employees, it's in the hundreds, 500 and some odd employees. We need 6,000 security personnel contractors to protect that small group. Once we make a commitment to go in and we make a commitment to the safety and security of our people, the costs multiply. And, and again, I, and I appreciate that. And of course, we thank everyone for their right. service who takes on that responsibility. But it's only to make the point that right. for one-sixth of what you do in Afghanistan, 45 billion, we could take care of this crisis over a period of time. And, um, and we don't have the resources. So far, you're here testifying on behalf of the administration for 45 billion more, essentially. And uh, this administration has yet to put up one nickel for the opioid crisis, not one nickel. We're still waiting to resolve this issue in the budget. It's, it, it'll have been 14, 15 months without a single nickel on something that is killing Americans every single day and many of them veterans, and there's no money. And they're saying this, you know, it's just so hard to find the money, and yet here, if we just cut your budget down by $7 billion, it'd be enough to put an opioid treatment center in every single county in the country. That would be comprehensive. So it's, it's a, I just keep ask you to be mindful of that trade-off, because every decision you make is draining from things that would, in fact, help people, their, these very families that are over there serving us here at home. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Udall. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and 
thank you both very much for your service. And I, I, I won't repeat it, but I also share the frustration you've heard from both sides of the aisle here in terms of uh, where we are in Afghanistan. And, and it, I want to look back a little bit because I remember at the time when I was in the House and we voted for the, the authorization of force, uh, President Bush was very specific about us um, going after terrorists of global reach. That was the term he used. And, and, it, and it, it, when I look at, at President Trump's quote here uh, on the new strategy last summer, he says, we're not nation building again, we're killing terrorists. And, and so what I'm, what I'm probing uh, from both of you is, is you know, are we, are we focusing on terrorists that have global reach that we believe are there in Afghanistan? And how many are there? Or are we focusing on, um, are we just focusing like the president says, we're just killing terrorists? I mean, this is a, I have a longer statement here, but it basically says, we're turning this over to Afghanistan. We're going to let them govern. We're going to let them do it. We're not going to tell them how to do it. Uh, we're, and we're not nation building. So will you focus on the, the, um, the um, uh, terrorism, terrorism of global reach? Because I think we, we've extended way beyond that, not only in Afghanistan, but around the world. And I thought the way uh, President George W. Bush phrased that was very important. Please. <clears throat> uh, flip a coin. Uh, you're absolutely right, Senator. The reason we're in Afghanistan uh, is because of what happened on September 11th. It's still the reason we're in Afghanistan. There is still there are still remnants of Al Qaeda there. Uh, ISIS has metastasized into Afghanistan with ISIS K. If the Taliban were to regain control of the country, we would very likely see the same platform for that global reach of terrorists that struck New York and Washington and Pennsylvania on September 11th. Having made that decision that we need to stop that platform from being recreated by the Taliban, it then causes, as, as I was discussing with Senator Markey, a decision for the United States to maintain a presence and engagement in Afghanistan automatically because of the security situation generates enormous costs just for the State Department. Uh, so our strategy is, is an effort to reconcile the cost, to minimize the cost to the U.S. government, both in, in, uh, in treasure and, more valuably, lives of my colleagues at the State Department and those of my colleagues in uniform, but also do all we can to support the Afghan government so that we don't have a Taliban that resumes uh, using Afghanistan as a platform for, uh, for terrorists. And, and could you could you add? Uh, he's mentioned ISIS again. We've we've seen uh, with our allies and others the defeat of ISIS in their capital in Raqqa. How many ISIS fighters have now come over into Afghanistan? That's there's been some discussion about that. Assistant Secretary Shriver, when you answer the first question there. Yeah, it's certainly something that we're we're watching carefully. That to defeat ISIS in one location, only to have them reinforce elements in another, would uh, would would be uh, uh, certainly uh, harmful to our interests. So our our CT mission, our counterterrorism mission, uh, sometimes in combination with 
the Afghan forces, sometimes unilateral, is exactly as the Deputy Secretary said. It's to prevent uh, Afghanistan from being a place from which terrorists can launch plans, support in any way uh, a, 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 a attack against American citizens, our homeland, or our, or our interests. Um, our, our assessment is walking away would, in fact, ha create the potential for such a platform to reemerge. So do you have a number for me, a specific number, or can you get me one for the record on how many ISIS fighters there in Syria and other have, have made it in since the, the fall of uh, Raqqa? We'll certainly work with the intelligence community to see what assessment can be made available, yes. Okay. The, the one thing that, that I think was, was kind of shocking to some on the committee and it was this $46 billion when you added it all up. I think uh, Senator Paul used the term $50 billion, but uh, you're going add to add us up and give us the, the, the actual number. But what I'm wondering is the folks were fighting, the Taliban, ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, you've mentioned them. What, what kind of resources do they have? What are, how, do, how much of, of countries outside and their own local resources? Are they, are they putting up $46 billion a year to, to get, as Senator Merkley said, they, they control more territory since 2001. So how, how much are they putting up? Well, what I'd, what I'd say, uh, Senator Udall, is as, as Secretary Shriver said, the, uh, the Taliban control unpopulated areas. What they're doing in those unpopulated areas is actually cultivating and producing narcotics, which they're selling. To get to Senator Markey's point, the production of narcotics in Afghanistan from regions that are controlled by the Taliban is skyrocketing. And that's how, among the principal sources, more than 50%. What cost do you put on that? I, I don't have a dollar figure, but what I have is an estimate that whatever the, whatever, and we can get you that yeah. from the intelligence, the dollar figure for what the Taliban, we think, however defined, uh, whatever our definition of the Taliban is, putting a dollar figure on that, 65% rough estimate of how they finance themselves is through the sale, production and sale of narcotics. Yeah, and, and so, so you don't, you'll try to get us an overall number, because I'm very interested in right. the, the idea that, that what our overall number is and what it theirs is. And, and you know, one of the, one of the um, great diplomats, Richard Holbrook, when he was in there, and both of you may know him, he, he started the strategy because of the, the uh, growing of poppies and all of that. He said, well, we're, we're going to allow them to grow them until uh, they shift over to another uh, product and, and a, a legitimate farming product or something like that. Are we trying anything like that in the areas that we end up capturing? Are we, um, or are we just eradicating fields and putting uh, a, a small farmer out of business? Um, well, first, on the statistics that you asked for, Senator, several members of the committee, starting, I think, with Senator Johnson, have asked. So, Mr. Okay. Chairman, we will commit to providing all of that information. Some of it may be classified, but we'll produce 
those stats, the best numbers that we can get you on yeah. facts and figures. And then with respect to narcotics, Senator, the State Department has got a limited budget for counter-narcotics efforts in, uh, in Afghanistan. There's a larger effort because of the, uh, the Taliban's use of narcotics to fund operations against the U.S. military and the Afghan government. The U.S. military is also uh, committed to the, uh, the counter-narcotics uh, effort. Thank you both for your service. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. But we're, we're, we're no longer... Um, and we had a major spraying operation, if you will, eradicating um, poppy fields, and then that stopped. And to uh, to to get specifically to his question, we, that that is no longer a, a robust program. Is that correct? Right. And, and just out of curiosity, it's not a robust program because. Um, well, I, I I believe that the U.S. military has focused on the uh, narcotics production in areas that are controlled by the Taliban, both to limit the production in the country, but also to cut off the source of revenue to the, uh, to the Taliban. So destruction of uh, Taliban financing, so to speak. That's correct. There's, there's an effort, there's, a, there's a, a more comprehensive effort at illegally illicit financing, but in terms of the uh, drug production and trade and, and money that they may may make off that. Um, there's certainly a, uh, an, an effort to disrupt, particularly uh, uh, storage facilities, distribution points, uh, etc. It's something that the Afghan forces are are focused on and we're assisting with. And and, and, and but not the fields themselves. Not similar to the programs that that we once had that was mentioned earlier. Yes, sir. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for your testimony and thank you uh, for your dedicated work in some extremely difficult um, areas of, of undertaking. Uh, let me just add, if I could, two questions that I think um, haven't been addressed in detail or maybe just in passing by one of my colleagues. Um, first, uh, about other actors uh, in the region. Um, Mr. Shriver, you had mentioned that uh, part of regionalizing our approach is an attempt uh, at both expanding burden sharing and neutralizing potential spoilers to U.S. efforts. And part of what I think has bedeviled our efforts in Afghanistan have been um, the lack of reliable cooperation, partnership, assistance, support from regional players. I think Senator Gardner asked about uh, Russia and Iran. Uh, let's focus, if we could, on China um, and the reports that they are constructing or planning to construct a military base in eastern Afghanistan. Um, do you think there's a chance that China could be a viable, constructive counterterrorism partner for the United States and Afghanistan? Um, do you think our pressure on Pakistan um, will only succeed in pushing them closer to China? And how do you see China playing either a constructive or destructive role in both the diplomacy and development efforts, uh, Mr. Sullivan, that are underway and the military security efforts that are underway? Thank you, Senator. I think there, there is the possibility that China on, on the counterterrorism front could be a partner. Um, they certainly have their own uh, concerns about terrorism within in China and the potential for linkages between terrorist groups operating elsewhere and, and for that to seep into China. 
historically, uh, we have run into some difficulties. What they define as a terrorist, particularly inside China and the way we look at things, there's, there's a, uh, an important difference there. But they do have an interest in stability in Afghanistan. They do have an interest in ultimate political resolution. And I don't see how we get there without fundamentally addressing the terrorist problem. So uh, in our discussions with China, uh, it is an agenda item how we promote our, our cooperation and how we can um, uh, for, ensure that they are a constructive participant in the process that's underway in Afghanistan. Mr. Solomon. Yeah, and with respect to economic uh, development, Senator Coons, um, certainly Afghanistan would be included as a small part of what you know is China's One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, what we've found, and this goes to a, an observation that Senator Corker made, uh, some significant investments by the Chinese, for example, billions of dollars invested in a copper mine that they've yet to be able to develop production from and, and now sits dormant. So uh, there are significant challenges to economic development in China that, excuse me, in Afghanistan that the Chinese have discovered uh, that Senator Corker and I were discussing, discussing earlier. Accessing, building the infrastructure in Afghanistan to ever access its vast mineral potential is something that I think you said may not happen in your lifetime. Uh, I agree that it, I mean, visiting Afghanistan gives you an insight into just how remote, how rugged, and how undeveloped it is as a nation. It may have vast mineral resources. They're still there because they are so incredibly hard to access. Um, let me turn to humanitarian issues. Uh, the UN reports uh, nearly half a million individuals, about 450,000, uh, became internally displaced or became IDPs within Afghanistan in uh, the last year. And about 60,000 refugees were turned from outside the country. Um, does the Trump administration plan to increase, Mr. Sullivan, its budget request to help refugees and IDPs within Afghanistan? Um, and how does the administration strategy account for the dramatic number of Afghan refugees in Pakistan and then how that destabilizes the region and how that humanitarian challenge uh, continues to be a, a contributor uh, to conflict. Well, that last point you raised, Senator, is very significant and was mm -hmm. brought up with almost every interlocutor I had in my discussions in Kabul last week. The potential for Pakistan to send back the huge number of Afghan refugees that are now in Pakistan would be very destabilizing. Right. And it's one area where uh, we credit uh, uh, the Pakistani government for what they've done in supporting those refugees. And it's part of our complex relationship with Pakistan. We've got, on the one hand, uh, our concerns with their, uh, their, their uh, lack of, of, of action to eliminate terrorists from these safe havens. But on the other hand, they have provided this support to all of these refugees, which if they didn't, if they went back into Afghanistan, would be a huge burden for the Afghan government. And President Ghani is very concerned about that. It, it, just to make sure I understand, there's more than two million Afghan refugees in Pakistan, many of them dating to the Soviet invasion of 79. Yes, and they are identified by the Pakistanis and they could be sent over the border. Um, let me ask a question that's not meant to be needlessly pointed, but how does it affect our moral authority in having that conversation with the Pakistanis when the administration has recently decided to begin deporting folks who have also been in the United States for decades under temporary protected status, fleeing conflict or natural disasters in their countries of origin? How does that impact those conversations about 
I'm saying to the Pakistanis, we would be appreciative, supportive if you would continue to host several million refugees in your country. Do they simply turn around and say, then why are you deporting hundreds of thousands of people who initially came to your country as refugees from civil wars or from natural disasters? That issue hasn't been raised to me in my discussions on on this issue with the Pakistani government, but I, I take your point. It's, it's rhetorically something that uh, they could. I would draw distinctions between the legal status under which uh, the TPS uh, 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 individuals were admitted here to the United States, uh, but I take your, take your point. But more broadly, I, I must say thank you for your work. It is striking. Um, the chairman earlier was saying, all in, what are we talking about? And I, I, the number 45 billion uh, is going to hang over my uh, thoughts for a number of weeks, um, 16, 17 years in. Um, I'm not convinced that we have a strategy to win, uh, but a conditions-based strategy um, and looking harder at our partners in the region um, strike me as at least giving us the potential uh, for progress. Uh, I listened to testimony um, from both of you in the question and answer from both Republican and Democratic members. I don't think there is um, a, a clear path out of Afghanistan, and I worry that uh, the Taliban will simply wait us out, regardless of how long we were there, and that as a result, we may be there the rest of my life. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, we're going to close. Are there any comments that uh, were left hanging that you'd like to uh, respond to? Uh, not for me, Mr. Chairman, no. Okay. Well, look, we, uh, we know you came into office and, and uh, you've been in now for a year and a month. Um, and this is something you inherited. Uh, I think most of us appreciate the conditions-based approach, the fact that you're really dealing with the region, uh, the fact that we're pushing back against uh, some of the duplicity that Pakistan has been putting forth for years. And I think we're all struggling, uh, just like you are, uh, to try to figure out a, a path forward when it's pretty murky right now as to how we get to a place where Afghanistan is able to function without significant support from, from the West and other countries. Um, but I do think that the strategy and that you've laid out is a, is a better strategy towards that end. Um, and I, you know, obviously we may ask for a classified briefing here in the near future to get into some of the details we weren't able to discuss here. But we thank you for your efforts. We thank you both for your transparency and your service to our country. Um, we're going to leave the record open until the close of business on Thursday. Um, if you could fairly promptly answer any additional written questions that may come in, we'd appreciate it. And with that, um, the meeting is adjourned.